Turn with me, please, to the 13th chapter of the Gospel of John. John 13. We've come now to my favorite part of the Gospel of John. It may even be my favorite part of the uh, entire New Testament. What we generally call the Upper Room Discourse. John 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17. That's something of a misnomer because the, uh, the discourse took place only in part in the upper room. According to chapter 14, the end of chapter 14, Jesus and his disciples left the uh, second story in the house that they had borrowed for this occasion and went down across the, the Kidron Valley up to the Mount of Olives. And uh, the discourse from chapter 15 on took place there on the Mount of Olives. But uh, we've traditionally called this the Upper Room Discourse because it's associated with our Lord's last meal with his disciples. This would be Thursday evening. On Friday, Good Friday, he was arrested and crucified. And uh, so within less than 24 hours after this address was given, our Lord was dead and in the grave. These were his last words to his own. And as someone has said, last words are lasting words. They have a profound impact upon us. I just love to read and ponder and teach from this passage, this portion of, of the Gospel of John, and I think you'll enjoy it as well. John introduces the discourse in this way, verse 1. Now before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that he should depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end, that is, continually, or fully, completely. And during supper, the devil, having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, to betray him, the crucifixion plot already in motion, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from the Father and was going back to God, rose from supper. Now, there are two things that John wants us to know that Jesus knew. The first was that Jesus knew that he was leaving and the disciples were staying. He was departing out of this world. He was leaving them in the world. Which tells us something about the nature of this discourse, this design to instruct the disciples about life in this world apart from Jesus' visible presence. Now, we'll learn in the Upper Room Discourse that our Lord was invisibly present, but his invisible presence would be something new to the disciples, and they needed to learn how to live in this life without the Lord visibly present there. Now, we've said over and over again that life is dangerous out there. We live in... uh, We live in a hostile environment, an enemy territory. We have an evil, treacherous, murderous enemy who's out to get us. And he will. Life is not easy. It's hard out there. We have to know how to live successfully. We have to know how to suffer successfully. And that's the purpose of this this discourse. Paul says in 2 Timothy 3 that the end times, the times in which we live, will be dangerous times. That word dangerous is the same word that's used to describe the man who came out of the tombs and from whom Jesus cast the legion. He was murderous in his intent. And that's the way our world is. We have to understand that. We have to, 
We have to expect assaults and attacks upon our family, upon our children, upon our health. That's, that's the name of the game. And we have to know how to live successfully in this world. Mike Warnicke tells a story about uh, one of his experiences in Vietnam. He was a medic, and uh, his job was to tend both uh, friend and foe. And on one occasion, he was, he was taking care of a wounded Vietnamese soldier, North Vietnamese soldier, and he was in a village. And a young child, about nine years of age, walked up with a candy bar in his left hand. He hadn't seen a candy bar from the States for months. And this boy handed him a candy bar with his left hand and shot him with a forty-five that he was holding in his right hand. Now, that's something of the, of the conflict that we're in. We have a terribly deceitful foe there who offers us, on the one hand, something that looks very good, but whose intent is murderous. We have to know how to identify him. We have to know how to avoid claymore mines. We have to avoid the traps and, pit, and, and pitfalls of life out there, and that's what this discourse will help us do. It will help us to come to terms with life in the world and how, how to live it. Jesus was going out, the disciples were staying in, and since he loved them and had the best of intentions for them, he wants to tell them how to live life successfully in this world, how to live Christianly, how to live as a Christian should in an evil environment. Now, the second thing that John wants us to know about this occasion is that Jesus knew who he was. Verse 3, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God, that's his origin, and he was going back to God, that's, that is his destiny, rose from supper. He knew what authority he had. He understood who he was. He realized that he had, he had ultimate power and authority. You would expect that John would say, knowing who he was, he rose from supper, uh, rose from dinner, and he uh, created another galaxy. Or he parted the Red Sea. Or he plagued Jerusalem with ten plagues. Or at least that he rose from supper and delivered the upper room discourse, or the Sermon on the Mount. But that's not what he says. Notice what happened. Verse 4, Jesus rose from supper, well aware of his power. He pulled himself together, reminded himself of the power that, that was his. He gathered strength, and he laid aside his garments, and taking a towel, girded himself about. Then he poured water into the basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. Now, you have to understand something of the culture of, of this particular period. People then took baths almost every day, and uh, they would go to the Roman baths where they had hot and cold running water and saunas and all sorts of, uh, of, of those kinds of comforts, conveniences, and they would bathe themselves. And then they would walk home, or, or on this occasion, they'd go to a banquet, some festive occasion, and uh, because sandals were in vogue in those days, they'd get dirt on their feet. They'd walk through the dust of the streets. And they would ri- arrive at the place of this, for this formal occasion, and their feet would be dirty. So they would have a servant stationed at the door who would wash their feet. But on this particular occasion, no one washed the disciples' feet. They didn't have slaves. They, 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 they weren't accustomed to that sort of thing. And so no one washed their feet. 
Now, uh, you have to get out of your mind the, the, the picture that Leonardo da Vinci painted of, of the upper room. You know, his picture with all the disciples on one side of the table. One, one friend of mine says that every time he sees that picture, it occurs to him that Jesus just said to the disciples, all right, all you fellows that want to get into the picture, get over here on this side of the table. So they're all, all arranged on one side. But that's not the way it was. They were... They ate Roman style. They, they, they arranged themselves around a low table, about six inches off the ground, and they reclined on their left elbow and ate with their right hand, and their, their feet would be, uh, uh, be out diagonally from, from the table. And Jesus stood up in the middle of the dinner. They, they had already started to eat. He stood up. He, he took off his outer robe, the long robe that reached to his feet, he took off his inner robe. Notice it says clothes. He took off his inner robe, which was the long gown, tunic that they wore, so dressed only in the little short undergarment that reached down to the knees, the garb of a slave. He began to crawl around on his hands and knees with a bowl of water and a bar of soap and a towel, and he began to, to wash their feet. This is something absolutely incredible. Rabbis didn't do that sort of thing. The word rabbi means high one, exalted one. They had the same sort of respect for their rabbis that, that students in European universities do today for their professors. They don't challenge them. They are their servants, their slaves. The teacher is the master. And for Jesus to get down on his hands and knees was something absolutely un, unheard of. Shocking. And so he came to Simon Peter, and Peter said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? That's the emphasis of the text. Lord, you're washing my feet? I, I don't know what was going through Peter's mind, but I suspect he was a little bit embarrassed for the Lord. We like our leaders to be uh, much more dignified. We were terribly offended when President Carter wore cardigan sweaters and walked down Independence Avenue and shook hands with people and tried to be folksy and, and like one of the common people. We don't want our leaders to act like that. We don't expect the Queen of England to shine her own shoes and, and to take care of her own horses. That's all done for her. And, and, and Peter was, felt very uncomfortable about this. He was embarrassed, I think, for, for the Lord's sake. Lord, you shouldn't be doing this. You are washing my feet. I should be washing your feet. The question is, well, Peter, why didn't you do that when everyone came in? As you know, what was happening when they came in from, from the other gospel account from Luke is that they were arguing with one another about who was the greatest. They were playing mirror, mirror on the wall. Who's the greatest of us all? And since no one was willing to take a place of servitude, no one washed anyone else's feet. So our Lord looked around, saw it hadn't been done, and he himself did the task. And it shocked Peter. Lord, you shouldn't be doing this. Jesus answered and said to him, What I do you do not realize now, but you shall understand hereafter. It occurred to me this past week that that's the answer to so much of life. There are so many things that our Lord asks us to do or that our Lord does or has done that are inexplicable to us and we don't understand. We don't need to understand right now. We'll know later. This was confusing to the disciples. Our Lord says, you don't need to know now. Just, just wait. You'll understand later. Peter said to him, verse 8, you shall 
never wash my feet. Actually, Peter uses a double negative. He says, you shall not never wash my feet. Now, that's bad English, but it's good Greek. If they wanted to negate an idea firmly, they would use a double negative. Ume, they would say. No way, (laughs) we would say. Never, under any circumstances, whatever, Peter says, will you wash my feet. And he must have pulled his feet up under his tunic at that point. Jesus answered, verse 8, If I do not wash you, you have no part with me. Notice the preposition, with me. It does not say in me. We begin to understand that, that there's something more than mere foot washing. Something more afoot, we could say. He's not talking about merely washing someone's feet. There, it has to do with relationship with him. I mean, the Lord, would he didn't mind walking with people that had dirty feet. He wasn't offended because Peter's feet hadn't been washed. There has, to be some, there has to be something more than that involved. You have no part with me, he says. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. In other words, you know, Peter was one of these men with his emotions right on the surface. He just said whatever he thought. Whenever it came to his mind, he said, well, then, Lord, give me a bath all over. Dump the bowl over my head. And, and Jesus said to him, no, Peter. He who is bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you, plural, referring to all the disciples, you are clean, but not all of you. And this as an aside to Judas. For he knew the one who was betraying him. For this reason he said, not all of you are clean. John didn't know that at the time, but uh, with the perspective of history, he could look back and realize that the Lord was When he said, not all of you, he was talking about Judas. He wasn't clean. And all of a sudden, the coin drops. We gain some insight into what Jesus is saying because he's not talking about bathing in Roman baths. He's talking rather about another kind of bath, the bath of salvation. When he says, Judas, or one of you is not clean, he says, one of you is not saved. One of you is not a believer. One of you has never been cleansed from his sins. You see, the salvation, the nature of salvation is, is so clearly seen in the, in the analogy that, that, that our Lord is using. You bathed in a Roman bath, you washed yourself all over, then on the way home you picked up a little bit of defilement, your feet got dirty, so you had to wash your feet when you got home. And he's using that as an illustration of the Christian life, both the nature of it and the necessity of it. First, we have to be cleansed all over. That's what Paul calls in his letter to Titus, the washing of regeneration. He says, you've been saved not by your good works, but because of God's mercy, by the washing of regeneration by the Holy Spirit, the cleansing away of sin that comes when you you put your faith in in Christ. But the problem is, is the world. We live in a dirty world. We live in a dirty environment. And when we walk through the world, we begin to pick up the attitudes and the feelings and and the aspirations and the desires and the dreams and the hungers of the world. And, 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 And we defile ourselves, and it affects our relationship with Christ. Not our union with Christ, but our fellowship with Him. We don't sense His presence we don't walk along closely with him. We, we, we sense there's a bit of separation. It's because we've, we've picked up some attitude from the world, the idea that, that you only go around once, so you might as well go for all the gusto in this world. Or the idea that, that sex outside of marriage is 
outside the protective environment of marriage is okay because everyone is doing it. Or the idea that you don't really have to protect your relationship to your wife and work on your marriage because if this isn't the right person, you can always find somebody else. These ideas are widespread in the world. Or the idea that you can shade the truth a little bit because that's the way you get along in this world. That's the way you confront your competition. You just tell little white lies. And it's so easy to pick these attitudes up from the world. Our feet get dirty. We have to give them a bath. That's what John calls later confessing your sins. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. He becomes our servant in that he washes our feet. If you confess your sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's foot washing. He's not talking about salvation. Once you've committed your life to, to Christ, you have a lifetime guarantee. You're clean. But our feet get dirty. We have to wash it as, as we make our way through the world. A friend of mine, Doug Hodell, uh, who's a young attorney in Sacramento, came up here a couple of weeks ago to be with us for the men's retreat. Those of you that were on the retreat remember Doug. We asked him one night to tell us a story, and he stood up, and I don't think I'll ever forget this. He said, I, w- I want to tell you about the three most significant events this past year. First is that I passed the California bar. The second is that I was reading the uh, Wall Street Journal of my wife the other night. And the third is that I got a telephone call. Now, he said, let me explain. He said, the first was passing the California bar. He said, all my life I've wanted to be an attorney. Graduated from college, went down to Southern California, made a pile of money. He could have retired at age 35 but decided that he wanted to be an attorney. It's what he'd always wanted. So he went to the University of California, Davis, and he got a law degree from there. And then he studied for six months so he could pass the California law exam, and he passed that. He got the piece of paper. He was now a sure enough, honest-to-goodness, bona fide lawyer. He got a job with a very prestigious firm in the Sacramento area, and he said, the whole thing just turned into ashes in my hands. I didn't want any of it. It didn't mean anything to me. And I realized that I devoted my whole life to a dream that was just a figment of my imagination. So the second thing, I said, I was reading the Wall Street Journal to my wife one night, and we were looking at where we were financially and how much our stocks and bonds were paying and, and sort of thinking through our financial position. And said, it's something we do every night. I get the Wall Street Journal out, look at the market reports, and, and we add up our worth. And he said, last week I was reading the Wall Street Journal, to my wife, and it dawned on me that we used to pray together. And I saw what was happening to me, that my security now was in my, my stocks and bonds, my funds, rather than in God. And then the third thing he said is that I got a telephone call from Paul Murray, who was our speaker at the men's retreat, and he said he could call Doug and ask Doug to come up and spend some time with us up here. And Doug thought back to the years... When Paul had discipled him, Paul was an intern working at Stanford University, ministering to students there, discipling these, these young men. And he had spent time with Doug, and he got Doug involved in a Bible study in his fraternity house and sharing Christ with his, with his friends. And he said, all I've done for the last ten years is run around with my non-Christian yuppie friends. And I realized how sweet that fellowship was with Christians that I've been foregoing all these, these years. And he said, those are the three most significant things that have happened to me this last year. 
You see what he's talking about? These are the subtle things that begin to creep into our life unnoticed, unrecognized. They begin to defile our feet. And we need to keep washing our feet if we're going to walk on with the Lord, rid ourselves of the, of the defilement that, that separates us from our Lord and, and from one another. In verse 12, we're told that when he, had, when he had washed their feet and taken his garments and reclined at table again, he said to them, Do you know what I've done to you? And I answer, Sure, he washed their feet. What's to know? Apparently, there must be something more. You call me teacher, one to believe, and Lord, one to obey. And you're right, for so I am. If I then, the Lord and teacher, washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. That is a command. That's not a piece of good advice. That's a command from our Lord. He's teacher. He's Lord. He says, now, I've washed your feet. You ought to wash one another's feet. For I gave you an example that you also should do as I did to you. That's the only place where that word example occurs in the Gospels. It must be very important. This example is perhaps the most example, which our, uh, most important example which our Lord set for us. So he commands, and then he sets the pace for us. And then he says in verse 16, Truly, truly, I say to you, and wherever you find those two words, you know, it's, a, it's an idiom which indicates a solemn assertion. This is very, very important. Listen up. Pay attention, he says. Truly, truly, I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, neither one who is sent greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. Now, that's a strange sort of statement. If you read it carefully, you'll notice there are two conditional clauses in there, if you know these things and if you do them. Now, in English, whenever we use a conditional clause, we almost always have in mind a true contingency. In other words, if I say to you, if I get done at 12 o'clock today, you'll be able to get home in time to save your roast from burning. But you don't know if I'm going to get done at 12 o'clock or not. That, that's, a, that's a true supposition. It's, it's a condition, you see. But now the Greeks had ways of expressing all kinds of conditional clauses, ranging from a high degree of probability to a lesser degree of probability. Now let me read it the way a Greek would understand verse 17. If you know these things, and you do, because you just heard them, I just taught you, I just put these things into your mind. If you know these things, and you do, you are blessed, you are happy, you'll have a feeling of self-worth, you'll feel good about yourself. If you do them, maybe yes, maybe no. That's the big if. That's the tough part. It's one thing to know what to do. It's another thing to do it. You see? I read a few months ago a story about Philip of Macedonia who was making his way down to the southern part of Greece, and he sent a message to the Lyconians who lived down in the Peloponnesus. That's that part of Greece that looks like a hand sticking down like this. And uh, he sent a message to him. He said, if I come into Lyconia, I will burn your cities to the ground. They sent him back a one-word telegram, if. That's the big if. And, of course, as you know, he never made it. That's where our word laconic comes from, by the way. A, a laconic answer is a terse, brief answer. 
The Laconians were the first to give that kind of answer. If, they said, that's the big if. And that's what our Lord is saying to us. This is the big if. You, you'll have a sense of worth. You'll, you'll have joy if you do these things. Maybe yes. Maybe no. Now here's a command from our Lord. He exemplified it. He tells us that this is the source of joy in our life. What does he mean? How do we wash feet? Is he saying that we literally ought to wash feet? number of denominations take it this way. The uh, Seventh-day Adventists, the Mennonites, the United Brethren all have foot-washing ceremonies. Perhaps we should include foot-washing as an ordinance, as a sacrament. We have two in the church. We celebrate the Lord's table. On the first of the month... Uh, that's uh, a way of picturing, as, as, Lord, as our Lord put it, his death until he comes. The, the wine and the bread are a picture of his blood and his body given up for us. We know that it's just a picture of a greater reality. And we baptize on the, I think it's the third or fourth Sunday of the month. We, that's a picture of our being placed into Christ, buried with him, raised again to newness of life. Those are two ordinances that we observe. Perhaps we should add a third. On the second uh, Sunday of the month, we'll bring a big uh, basin in here, and we'll all file by, and, and we'll wash one another's feet. Certainly there'd be nothing wrong with that. But for myself, I think our Lord had something else in mind. There are several ways of looking at this, uh, this pattern, this example which our Lord set. Some commentators say that, that this is a parable of our Lord's ministry. He took off his robes of glory. He set aside the independent use of his prerogatives as God. He laid all, all of that aside. And he came to earth and, in effect, wore a servant's garb. He, he came as a humble servant. He came not to be ministered unto, but to minister And to give his life a ransom for many. And then having made salvation, he again put on his robes of glory and he seated himself at the right hand of God. That makes sense to me and certainly I can see that in the pattern of our Lord's actions here. It's what Paul is describing in Philippians 2. He who is in the form of God did not think it a thing to be forcibly retained, to be equal with God. But made himself of no reputation and humbled himself and became in fashion as a man. And as a man, he became a servant. Wherefore, God, he says, has highly exalted him and given him the name that is above every name. So it fits. That's, that's a, it's a beautiful picture of, of what our Lord came to do. Others would say, as I pointed out earlier, that this is merely a picture of the necessity and the nature of salvation. There is a once-for-all cleansing, and then there is a daily need to, to cleanse our, our, ourselves from defilement. And that makes a great deal of sense to me as well. Others would say, well, this is a picture of humility. Our Lord came to serve. Here's a picture of God serving. It's what he came to do. It's what he wants to do. He wants to make himself available to people. And he sets the pattern for us. We need to set aside our, our uh, rights and privileges and, and get down on our hands and knees and serve people. All of those answers are fitting. They're appropriate. And I think they're accurate. But I'd like to suggest one further understanding of this, of this story I think what our Lord is intending to teach us here and what he commands us to do 
is to humble ourselves in a very special way, and that is to help one another rid ourselves of defilement. I don't think we always see the dirt on our feet. And I'm not sure that even when we see it, we're always able to do something about it. Paul says it's with all the saints that we know all the dimensions of God and, and see all the dimensions of his, of his love. Israel had to march around Jericho in concert in order to bring down this entrenched fortification in the land. And I think sometimes it, it takes all of us together to help a brother or sister rid himself or herself of the, those deeply rooted habits and areas of sin in our life. I think what our Lord is telling us is that we need a lot of help to grow and take care of these issues in our lives. That we can't live independent lives. It's simply not my relationship with God that matters, but my relationship with God is very much dependent, dependent upon the help that I get from from my brothers and sisters around me who, who help me to, to wash my feet, who, who, who find me at a time when I'm giving way to some attitude that, that, that I've picked up from the world, some falsehood, or, or I'm shading the truth a little bit, or skirting around some area of, where I'm not fully, uh, where I'm not, I don't have integrity. And someone spots that, and, and they come to me, not from some lofty, exalted position of self-righteousness, self-righteousness, but they crawl in on their hands and knees and help me wash my, wash my feet. I think that's what he's talking about. I, I have come to appreciate lately, I think, that friendship among Christians is more than mere friendship. You don't pick out someone to hunt and fish and shop and, and sow and, and do things with just merely because they're friends. But the goal of every relationship as Christians is to help the other person grow up and become all that they were meant to be. I, one of my favorite stories is that of Jonathan and David. Jonathan found David when he was off in the Judean wilderness. He was frightened out of his wits, running from David. His life, or some Saul, his life was in jeopardy. He didn't know if, if he'd ever see the sun rise again. He was scared. And Jonathan went out and found him. And, and the text says he strengthened David's grip on God. That's what we've got to do for one another. It's a humbling task, but we've got to do that for one another. You see a brother or sister who's struggling, having trouble with their faith, failing, acting in weakness. You move in on your hands and knees, and you wash, your, wash their feet. You help them grow. I, I recall an incident years ago with Steve Newman when he, when he washed my feet, good and proper. We were... Uh, uh, we were both ministering on a university campus, and on this particular campus, the big faith wrecker was the history of Western civilization class that every freshman had to take. It was required, and a lot of uh, fine young Christian men and women came into that class and just had their faith destroyed because of the radical approach that was taken to the Old Testament. And Steve and I got our heads together and decided that we would invite Dr. Bruce Walkie to come down and give a series of lectures, correlative lectures, in conjunction with the Western Civ class and uh, present a more evangelical view of the Old Testament. And uh, so we prayed about it and decided to go. The Sunday before I went in, I, uh, our college group used to meet in the, in the uh, geology building, and I was uh, teaching uh, through Philippians, and I came to that section of Philippians where Paul says, the things that have happened to me 
have proceeded unto the furtherance of the gospel. But what had happened to him is that he'd been thrown in jail. And the Philippians were thinking, well, that's the end of it all. The whole, the whole proceeding is going to shut down now that the main apostle is in prison. And Paul says, no, no, no. He said, what's happened to me has actually proceeded, has resulted in the furtherance of the gospel. And you know what had happened to him. He was chained to Roman soldiers who were the elite picked young men of the empire who were going back to the palace barracks and they were leading their friends to Christ so that many, many people right in the heart of the Roman Empire, the elite of, of the palace guard were coming to Christ. These were the kingmakers. They became senators. These were the most influential people in the, in the government. And they were finding the Lord. And Paul says, what you thought was an obstacle was in fact an opportunity for God to work. What has happened to me has proceeded in the furtherance of the gospel. And I really rang the changes on that. That obstacles are merely opportunities for God to work. So uh, we went in to see the head of the, uh, the chairman of the Department of History, whom I knew slightly, and I knew was a committed non-Christian. And uh, we went in to talk to him about having this series of lectures, and he said, no, absolutely not. And I stammered around and shuffled my feet and mumbled something, and, and we walked out of his, his office, and as we were walking down the hall, Steve put his arm around me. Now, you have to understand, this is my disciple, see. I'm, I'm the discipler. He's the disciple We're walking down the hall, and Steve says, Hey, David, just want to remind you that obstacles are opportunities for advance. Now, that's washing feet, see. And that's the sort of thing that we're called upon to do for one another. It's a humbling task. You don't, you don't come down from on high and deliver that message. You crawl in on your hands and... And feet, as Paul says, the servant of God must not strive, but be patient with all men and women, gentle in meekness, instructing those that oppose themselves. You know, I, I think in our homes we've got to do this for one another. Husbands need to do this for their wives, and wives need to do it for their husbands. It's a hard task. I'm, I'm full of good advice. I'm always telling Carolyn how to run the house. And, you know, I just, you know, I, I, I like to do that sort of thing. And I find that she doesn't always respond real well to that. And uh, she's also full of good advice. She's a very creative, thoughtful person. And she has a lot of suggestions for the way I ought to conduct my ministry and live my life. And I find I don't respond very well to that either. And we've talked about this a lot. There's something going on here that's not quite right. And what it is is this. I want to shape her up because what she's doing is bugs me. See, I, that's, that's the issue. I don't like what she's doing. It bothers me. I'm not trying to wash defilement off of her feet. I'm not trying to help her grow up to maturity to become all that God intends her to be. I'm just annoyed at what she's doing. And I've missed the whole point, you see. Now, what we've got to do is, is not try to conform other people to our ideals and make them fit into our plans but we need to see our husbands and wives in terms of what God intends them to be and when we see defilement on their feet we don't come in from some lofty pious position and come down on them we don't look down on them we come in on our hands and knees and you get out your your bowl and your bar of soap and your and your towel and you gently Wash their feet. Got to watch the temperature of the water. Don't want to plunge their feet into scalding water. Don't want the water to be freezing. It's got to be done warmly and gently and lovingly. 
But it has to be done. We don't have any option. That's what Jesus said. If I did this to you, you've got to do it to one another. Now let me tell you, you can't do that unless you're secure in the Lord. Unless you get your sense of significance from Him. That's where our Lord started. He reminded Himself of what He was and who He was. And then He could serve. That's the only way to serve. Uh, Larry Crabb in his book describes some marriages as a tick-on-a-dog relationship. And that's a helpful analogy. You know, they're parasitic. You're looking for the other person to feed you in some way, to take care of your needs. But, you see, if the Lord is taking care of your needs, if you're secure in Him, if you're finding your significance from Him, if you see yourself the way He sees you, then you can serve. You don't have to look good. You don't mind if you humble yourself. You, you, you can help another person get the dirt off their feet. Now, we need to remember, that's the way the Lord did it. And that's what he tells us to do. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, we thank you again for this reminder, indeed this, this uh, command, that we can never forget that we... We have to serve. You You gave us that opportunity, and you set the, the pace for us. We need to follow you in this manner. Help us to be willing to humble ourselves as you did. Help us to draw our strength from you and find our worth in you, and then give ourselves away in acts of service to others. Help us to, to help one another grow up to maturity, to deal with the issues in our life that keep us from walking on in fellowship with you. We thank you for this helpful word. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.